Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the Double Reed community for 70 years. Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de mort, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed-making accessories, reed cases, and lafrex. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground and choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckle bassoon vocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to find the perfect heckle vocal for you. For all your double reed accessory needs, Nielsen is ready to help you. Barton Kane, revolutionizing gouged, shaped, and profiled bassoon cane with precision, consistency, and love since 2012. Leave the cane processing to them. Free up time to practice, take a romantic dinner cruise, or cuddle on the couch with your cat on a rainy day, and listen to the Double Reed Dish podcast. Enter coupon code Double Read Dish Rocks My World for free shipping on your next Barton Kane order. Visit www.bartonkane.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Yes, from our quarantine, where I stay at home and um, ask my wife to do everything outside the house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, today is our first, we're recording this on Monday, and it's our first day, sort of, quote, back to school after Mm -hmm. an extended spring break. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to see my students today um, at quote, studio class (laughs) for the first time in over two weeks. And I'm really excited to see their faces, but it's, it's going to be a little strange. It's going to take some getting used to. Yeah. But the good news is I have set up my, uh, my home office area in the practice room of my home and inadvertently have positioned this one painting right in the frame of my recording area. It's like a, it's like something I inherited from my father's side of the family. And I call it uh, the judgmental rabbi because it's just this portrait of this rabbi glaring. <laughs> it's right in the frame. <laughs> Judgmental <laughs> rabbi doesn't like that high D. <laughs> you have to post a picture on social media so they can see judgmental I will. rabbi. <laughs> I, I told my mom that I call him the judgmental rabbi and she's like, he could be an ancestor. Don't speak ill. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, our dish topic for today is how we're doing quarantine and uh, the age of corona, just how we're doing. So I thought it would be kind of a cool idea to take a cue from my beloved Real Housewives reunions in which Andy Cohen, Mm -hmm. who is currently recovering from coronavirus. Really? I didn't know that. It's true. Asks each of the women for their rose and thorn 
of mm-hmm. a particular season. So they're, they're peak in their pit, high and low. So yeah, how, how have you been, Rose and Thorn? Well, I have to admit, I was built for this. I love being home. I want to be home all the time. I guess my rose, well, I have a really big rose and her name is Ruby. My friend found a puppy on a walk and posted about it on Facebook groups. And we've been monitoring all the, you know, lost pet online things and calling around to vets and shelters. And nobody seems to be looking for this puppy. So she's ours now. (laughs) She's really sweet. She's a four month old hound mix. She's getting wrinklier by the minute. Um, She's really, really sweet. And she's really fun. And Luna loves her. I just, you know, it's a little, it's okay. It's not a little work. It's a lot of work. She's a lot of work. (laughs) But, you know, she's going to be such a great dog. And she's going to have a beautiful life. And it just feels really great to open up to more love in your life mm-hmm. rather than less. Um, but the biggest thorn is that I miss my students and it's going to be weird teaching them over Zoom. And uh, I guess the biggest thorn is knowing that so many of the students have lost a significant amount of income because of all of these canceled gigs. And I know that they're nervous you know, the uncertainty of it is disconcerting. Um, so I guess that's the biggest one for me. Like I'm personally doing okay, but I know that, you know, at USM, we have a lot of students with food insecurity and students below the poverty line and first generation college students that are really like thrown off with all of this change and adjustment. I'm going a little mama bear thinking about what can I do? And I just, can't think of all that much. So that's the biggest thorn, I guess, is uh, feeling a little bit helpless. What's yours? My thorn is a little selfish. And I know that's something that a lot of people are struggling Mm -hmm. with is their personal disappointments in proportion to what the world is actually struggling with. So let me preface this by saying that I know this is a personal disappointment and not in any way comparable to the devastation that some people are feeling. Yes, but you cannot compare suffering and you have to feel your feelings. It's true. Um, so I think my biggest thorn has been IDRS getting oh, canceled. Yeah, a thousand percent. I was just kind of looking forward to everything about it. I'd been Benjamin told me when he submitted the proposal to host. So I've been anticipating this for years before it was even announced. I'm alumni and I love the University of Iowa and we had this like Hawkeye alumni quintet quartet, sorry, that was gonna play and Stephanie Patterson from Columbus State and I were going to do this dual recital and they'd given us a 90 minute show Mm -hmm. slot and uh, we had the giveaway and it was going to be in Iowa City and I was going to get to see Benjamin before I moved and get to see Iowa City before I moved. So to have that kind of pulled out from underneath has been uh, a bummer. I'll be honest that I cried (laughs) when it was announced. Oh, Jack. 
And then it kind of threw me off my practicing for a while because I just kind of didn't know what I was practicing for and the attitude mm-hmm, of you like- You were having a sad. Yeah. It, it's like, I know the response should be, wow, look at all the time for fundamentals, for etudes when life requires us to be repertoire based so much of the time. And I'm confident that I'll hold myself accountable for that professional mindset, but it it took me a couple days slash last week to kind of just, yeah, like you said, let myself feel my feelings and then, okay, moving on. I felt them and, and moving on, but that's by mm-hmm. far been my biggest thorn. And uh, just mm. shout out to Benjamin Quillo and Courtney Miller for all of their efforts organizing that conference. What a generous act for our field. Mm-hmm. A tremendous amount of work. Um, my rose has been time. Kind of like you were saying, I'm not the personality that's going to struggle with being at home. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I just want to know the PJ situation. Are you doing daytime pajamas? I'm well, okay. So I have like my workout clothes, which I have like workout clothes I actually work out in and then workout clothes to wear during the day, like the running pants because they're so comfy. <laughs> Athleisure. At, exactly. Um, so that's what I've been doing a lot of. And then also for my birthday, I treated myself to a brand new pair of fleece sweatpants. And they are, you know how brand new fleece just feels mm-hmm. like the softest thing. And I've been like forcing myself to take those off. It's like, okay, I need to put these in the washer so I can put them back on immediately because oh, they're so soft. So yeah, there's been no pants oh. with zippers since mid-March. And I don't anticipate them coming back until oh, August, September. Smell you later, zippers. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, um, just having the time, like we all, you know, get these ideas of, oh, wouldn't it be cool to do this project or work on this thing? And uh, it's just so hard to set aside time with life and whatnot. And I have time to practice and make reads and be with my loved ones in the house and maybe read a book or take a nap, that type of thing. Mm. So shout out to all the extroverts out there. I don't know how you're doing it, but... uh, (laughs) Not a problem for me. Uh, We asked our listeners how they're doing, and we got a lot of silver lining, optimistic responses. I'd love to dig into those a little bit. My favorite one is from Noah. He says, my quintet, except for our lovely horn player, lives together, so we're stuck in quarantine. Chamber music and wine all day, every day. (laughs) (laughs) Philip says my music life schedule is different every day so it's hard to maintain a good sleep wake cycle but because of this virus I'm less busy and able to stabilize my health I actually feel much better now than when we were all working meanwhile I'm doing more fundamentals and correcting some bad habits I have in my playing embouchure posture articulation etc so yeah just taking time to reset everything oh that's so good uh, Dylan says, for me, my orchestral gig line for April would have been a blast to perform both Beethoven 9 and his Misa Solemnis on back-to-back weekends, but I trust these opportunities will help head my way again in the future. It is incredibly heartwarming seeing the plethora of folks utilizing social media and video platforms demonstrating their skills as artists and developing musicians. I have this fantasy that once it is safe for folks to socialize, that there will be a renaissance of new works, more chamber music performance 
performances, visual art exhibitions, more drag and multimedia performances in efforts to bring our communities back together again. Lovely, lovely sentiment. I certainly hope so. Yeah, you know, I guess the other thing I'd love to say is we don't want to be tone deaf and not acknowledge the current events of the world, but that we've decided this is going to be our last Corona-centered dish episode because we also want to be an escape for all of our listeners and we don't have to marinate in this. You know, we all know what's happening. Mm -hmm. We're taking it seriously. And if the worst thing that's happening is a convention gets canceled or we have to have studio class online, we are very, very blessed. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Sing and Dog Double Read Supplies is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit them at www.singindog.com to see all of their products. We are absolutely delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Ryan Crapo, Principal Bassoonist with the Houston Symphony. Welcome, Ryan. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Would you start by telling us how you came to play the bassoon? I have always loved music and loved music by trying to make music. Um, And so my mom gave me piano lessons, uh, very briefly, I think she very quickly got annoyed with me because I didn't want to practice. I just wanted to play all the good stuff. Um, And so I did piano for a little bit. And by the time band auditions rolled around in the fifth grade, I was so eager. I could not wait to get into band. I grew up in a small, small town. So that was the only option was was the the concert and marching bands. Um, So I was pretty gung-ho about wind instruments specifically, I wanted to play the oboe. Um, And they didn't have double reed instruments for sixth graders because they really thought that kids should start on other instruments. So I played the clarinet for about six months. Um, I think that's a pretty common starting instrument. Mm -hmm. And then got bored with that pretty quickly. I think there were about 30 of us and we were kind of, you know, you have to move at the pace of the, the least experienced player, kind of bring everyone along as a group, but I could already read music and I was already very into, you know, I'd get it out at home and practice and make up little songs. And, um, and so I, I was ready for something that I could move at my own pace and uh, they still didn't have an oboe for me, but the high school bassoon player had just quit. So they gave me the bassoon that the school district owned um, and, handed me a fox fingering book and shoved me into a practice room. And I was so happy. And I just learned all the fingerings and kind of sat there for quite some time by myself. Um, And just was very happy to be moving at my own pace and exploring this really, really cool instrument. Um, I'm sure my reads were terrible. I'm sure I bought them at the, you know, straight music or whatever. Um, 
And around eighth grade, they hired a new band director who was Bill Lewis, the principal bassoon player in the Austin Symphony. And so all of a sudden I had this amazing resource and I had lessons and he made me reads and he encouraged me to do things that I just, of course, didn't know were opportunities. Because our high school band didn't have a bassoonist, I was asked to play some concerts with them. Um, I even went on a little trip with them. Uh, to a performance at a, a competition and it was just it was really exciting and I was being pulled upward to these better players and you know just being shown the sort of more sophisticated way of uh, approaching an instrument pretty early and I was very excited about that and when we got into high school I you know I you can't march with a bassoon and so I, I kind of picked up the flute and the piccolo and um, I played some pit instruments for a while um, but most, I was always coming back to the bassoon and I don't know what year it was exactly, but I was, I was definitely like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to study music. I'm going to be a band director. That was my, cause I had these great role models. I loved my mm -hmm. band directors and they were all really dedicated, you know, intelligent, exciting people who just were, they just loved music and they loved teaching music to kids. And I just thought that was such a great job. So where did you go from there? How did you embark on this journey? And we know that you did not become a band director. So how did your thinking shift <laughs> to prioritize being a professional orchestral bassoonist? Well, when I went to, I went to UT, I had applied to many schools. Um, and I ended up at University of Texas at Austin and was studying with Kristen Jensen there. And after a couple of years I found myself really resistant to the idea of beginning my education classes, conducting classes and marching band classes. You know, you have to, you have to learn how to chart and you have to do this kinds of things. Um, and I had already had this plan that for my junior year, I was going to study abroad. In high school, I had spent my junior year living in Germany and I didn't really play the bassoon that much that year. I was just attending a regular old high school and living with a family and learning German. And so I was, I was pretty intent on doing that again. So my junior year of college, I had applied for several scholarships offered by the university and received one to go study um, in this little town called Würzburg. And the scholarship uh, actually so they offered me the chance to, instead of studying at the technical university, if I applied and was accepted at the conservatory in that town, then they would pay for me to do that instead. So I flew to Germany and I auditioned at this little school. Um, there's little schools everywhere and they're all fantastic. And so I was actually accepted to this school and was given this opportunity to study in Germany where, you know, birthplace of the bassoon, right? So I studied with this guy, Albrecht Holder, um, who was kind of former principal in Stuttgart. And he basically kind of changed the direction of what I thought was possible and what I could do. He didn't let me do anything but fundamentals and intervals and sound control work for about six or seven weeks. And he had also placed me in a class with 18 year olds, you know, here I am, I'm 20, 21. And he was like, yeah, you don't have all these fundamentals. You need to go way <laughs> back to the beginning and start over. And of course I was just 
being me, I was very excited to hear that. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. so weird. <laughs> it's so weird. But I like could not wait to like, oh, you're going to teach me something new. Like I was so excited. And after that year of working really hard with him and seeing progress and just basically being shown um, a different way to do the same things. And I'm sure Ms. Jensen had told me all the same things, but I, I wasn't ready to hear it or it was just said in a slightly different way. Um, and when I came back from that year, I was like, you know, I think I can do this. I think I can do this as a performance major. So I came back and switched my uh, degree plan and finished out, you know, I did another year and a half at UT after that. Um, and started applying to grad schools um, with with now the idea that I was no longer going to be a band director, but I was going to try to get an orchestral job. Um, and so I, I applied to a few different places and then was accepted at Rice University with Ben Caymans. I'm going to ask a question that is a little bit off track of your you know career trajectory, but it sounds like you embody the idea of a growth mindset. And... I would love to hear more about how, like, was that an intentional thing? I mean, I, it says in your bio that you grew up in a, an intentional community. And mm -hmm. does that have something to do with how open you are to learning and uh, criticism? And um, a, a, it's almost like you have a free attitude toward learning something new and it doesn't matter if you got placed with the 18 year olds when you were 21 you were like oh yes I want to learn something new can you talk to us more about that I can try I don't know that it is intentional on my part actually <clears throat> um I like learning stuff I liked school I was I mean of course it helps that I was successful in school um, made me feel good, but I like taking tests. I like being challenged. I like physical challenges. I like mental challenges. I like things that put me out of my comfort zone in a way. Um, of course, nobody likes to be embarrassed, but usually embarrassment or being uncomfortable or confused is means that I'm not understanding something. And I really want to understand that something probably mm. so I can stop being embarrassed or stop being confused, <laughs> you know? Um, but I really do um, just like new things. And I mm. like how that completes a picture for me or gives me one more um, way to look at something. And I feel like if I'm not understanding something, it's because I don't have enough information. Mm -hmm. And so I spend a lot of time gathering information, I'm sure to the annoyance of some people who like, come on, just make a decision. I'm like, no, there must be one more piece of information <laughs> that I need before I can make this, you know, not very important decision. Um, yeah. So I think that's part of it. I do in our community, it was um, because it was intentional. We weren't just neighbors. We made an effort to settle disputes and have conversations about what we all wanted and how we were going to achieve those goals, whether it was like sort of social behaviors or uh, how we wanted to raise kids or, I mean, everyone was an independent family. It wasn't, it wasn't like a commune, but we was, but we still spent so much time together um, and 
there was a lot of feedback that of course is going to make people uncomfortable and that mm-hmm. it's going to make, it's like, you know, it's like having roommates, except we didn't, you know, we didn't live in the same house. Um, you have to have those conversations if you're going to keep living together. And so we had these, I mean, we lived out there for 20 or 30 years. My parent, it's kind of, the community has broken up a tiny bit as people move a little bit further away. Cause they're, you know, their kids have left the house or whatever. Um, but you know, we lived together for quite some time and those are very deep relationships and they take a lot of work, um, no matter how friendly and loving and hopeful everybody is. And so I, I do think that that is the, the ability to sit there and have someone tell you, I'm really unhappy with you and ha- doing it in a way that's constructive because you respect each other and love each other. I think that translates to a teacher who you respect and love and hopefully they respect mm-hmm. and love you telling you, I'm not happy with what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can take that hopefully as, as it's, as it's presented, you know, maybe unemotionally, maybe slightly emotionally, and then take that and, and take it for what it is like, wow, they really want the best for me and they really want me to change and, and do this thing because it will be good for me um, and for them and for us, then, you know, I don't know. And it almost sense. seems like it also translates to your relationship with the bassoon in general, not just your teacher, but Correct. to the bassoon. <laughs> I, I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I was trying to think of the, one of the questions that you guys had on the forum was like, you know, what advice can you give about reads? And one of, like, I was just trying to think, and it goes for bassooning too, like never be satisfied, but always be content. Like, don't like always want more always try for more never be satisfied with the limitations that are presented all the time with reeds and bassooning in general and whatever but be content with what you do have and enjoy it and and love it because if you're never if you're never satisfied and that's the end of it you might as well quit now because you're going to be miserable Mm -hmm. but if you can strive and strive and strive and strive but still then like put on your read and like have fun practicing or performing even if it's not perfect, then I think that's a good balance because you'll, you'll get better all the time, but you'll still be happy while you're trying, you know? I'm going to spray paint that on my office wall. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, I think that's the quote card. <laughs> okay, <Yeah>. great. <laughs> uh, so now that I've completely derailed us. <laughs> totally fine. Well, uh, so yeah, getting back to your kind of um, trajectory, can you talk us through now setting your intention on orchestral playing and the process of beginning to take auditions and winning your position with the Houston Symphony? So I felt a little bit behind the curve at that point. I had not done any summer festivals. I had not taken any auditions. And so when I was accepted at Rice, I kind of had the feeling like, oh man, it's time to get the ball rolling here. Like I really need to kind of do what everybody else is doing. I need to enter this, this field. And there were other kids at at UT who had, you know, been doing festivals and that type of thing. Um, I I think I'd applied to a few places, but not really not gotten in. Um, I, I had done some competitions. I was a finalist for the gelée competition in 2000 and Ooh, four and six. So the second time was at Rice, but the first time was, was when I was still at UT. And so I had some experience outside of like, you know, the practice room, (laughs) Um, but it wasn't much. And so I, I went to round top 
um, for a couple summers and was starting to take a few auditions. So I took a few auditions that were in Houston. I, I always get a slow start with just about everything. So I was like, oh, look, I can drive to this audition. Okay, fine. <laughs> I took it. And I didn't, I didn't get anywhere. I took a few for the ballet and a few for the opera. And I took one for the symphony. The, the principal position was actually open, at the, had been open at the time since, since Cayman's left around 2001. It, had, it was open. Um, so I took that audition, of course, didn't get anywhere. Um, and then after uh, my years at Rice, I, was, I had been to Tanglewood at that point, and I was taking more auditions. And I took some auditions in Atlanta and St. Louis, and I was really starting to get a hang of like the level that I needed to be at to take these auditions um, and how much preparation needed to go in and how seriously I needed to take it. And when I took, I took the St. Louis audition the summer right after I graduated and actually made it to the finals. This was for associate principal. And I was so nervous and I had no, I felt like I had no idea what I was doing. And I was, you know, calling Cayman's in between, in between rounds. What do I do now? <laughs> you know, And, and he was, just, he was just, you know, his advice was like, they like you or they would not have advanced you just play like yourself. And I was Beautiful. Like, okay, I guess, you know, um, so I, I was, you know, was not hired for the position, um, which is fine. Um, and, but I was, you know, I was like, okay, this is a good sign. This means I need to keep going. And, um, so in the meantime, I had graduated and my husband and I were, had moved back to Austin and cause he had been, this is sort of an aside. I got married in let's see 2003 I was a senior and my husband at the same time I was accepting grad school uh, applications he was also applying to grad school for composition um, but ended up not getting accepted to Rice and decided to instead become a firefighter because that's related wow <laughs> and so so he was now had been <laughs> He has now, he, so by the time I'm graduating from Rice, he had been an Austin firefighter for two years and had been commuting to Austin every other, every third day. So we moved back to Austin, like in a hot second, like as soon as we could, because um, the commute was so tough. Um, Isn't so, it three hours? It's yeah, it's three hours. Yeah, that's it's, a lot. And he was like not sleeping at night and like doing, you know, it was it was really tough. So we moved back to Austin, rented a house for my parents, um, and uh, where I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna take auditions and do. I'm gonna gig as much as possible. Um, Darius Hale, the second bassoonist um, in in the Austin Symphony, um, was very ill at the time, and so she asked me to play for her in the symphony and in her quintet. So I had this, you know, this great work while I was there. Um, so lucky. And um, I, we had also, my husband and I had also discussed like, well, gosh, if we, we're going to start a family, we should do it now while my parents are around and while we have help. So we got pregnant. And so in October of right after graduating from rice in October, I was pregnant and proceeded to be very ill for many weeks. <laughs> mm. I had terrible morning sickness with the first one. And so I got a call from New World Symphony saying, hey, would you come substitute with us in January? And I looked at my calendar and I was like, I'll feel better by then, right? 
So I accepted, uh. the I accepted the job. And sure enough, a few <laughs> days before I was supposed to go, I um, started feeling better. So thank goodness. I flew out there, you know, and had a, had a fun week um, <clears throat> with New World, whom I had never played with before. This is my first sort of like, I mean, I had played with the Austin Symphony, but this is my first sort of more, uh, I guess it's, it's a professional gig. So it was, I was excited. Um, at the same time, the Austin, the Houston Symphony principal audition had been listed. And I was like, this is my job. I need this job. This is the job I can have and my husband can keep his job. It wouldn't be such a scary thing to, you know, if I had gotten the St. Louis job, he would have to basically leave his work while I was getting tenure. And then what if I didn't get tenure? And then he, mm -hmm. we would both not have jobs. And so it was this very complicated sort of dance we were doing. So I was like, this is my job. I need it. So I started practicing again in January and um, after being sick and the audition was six weeks away. And I busted my booty and I practiced so many hours every day. And I did everything I knew I had to do. I went and played for people. I recorded myself. I drove back to Houston and hired a bunch of my friends for pizza <laughs> to play through the chamber music excerpts with me because there were chamber music excerpts on it. And I practiced etudes and I did all the things I went and played for Larry Radcliffe. I went and played for Ben Kamen's and I was so, so focused on this goal. And I came in, I felt really good and I advanced um, into the semis and then we played the semis and I felt really good and I advanced to the finals and the finals were not until May. And so I was pretty nervous about that. I was going to be seven, seven and a half months pregnant and I didn't know if that would affect how I played. I didn't know if that would affect how people saw me. Um, and so I kept practicing, kept practicing, was doing gigs, kept practicing. And that rolled around in late May or mid-May. And um, there were six of us and we all, I was looking around at these other people and they're all really good. And they're all working just as hard as I am, you know, and it was exciting to be there, um, but it was also very scary because I felt like this might be my last chance to take an audition and get a job because, boy, after I have a kid, I was pretty aware of how difficult was that, what that was going to be, but I still really had no idea how difficult that was going to be to have a child. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I, yeah, they moved us to a super final and there were three of us and, and, and they ended up offering the job to me. And it was one of those just unbelievably bittersweet uh, successes. Like, oh my gosh, I have this incredible job. It's a dream job. I'm in a city I'm familiar with. Like my teacher, uh, Caymans, and my mentor is here. And um, I'm going to have this good support system. And oh my goodness, I'm about to have a baby. And my husband's going to have to start commuting again. And we'll be away from my family. And we won't have that help anymore. And so it was just this very wonderful and awful thing all at once. Um, so the symphony was wonderful. They allowed me a lot of time. They basically gave me maternity leave before I even started. Um, and so I didn't start the job until December and it was the worst two years of my life. It was so hard. I had a very difficult 
child who didn't like to sleep and wanted to nurse all day and all night. And I had a husband who was not there very much. Um, he did what he could when he was home, but he was gone a lot at work. And I was entering a situation in the orchestra, which was I was the first new face in a really long time. Um, you know, that principal trio had been together for 23 or four years by the time wow. I got there. So I was the first, I was kind of breaking into this family, you know, and it was I was not able to be as engaged and as socially active as I wanted because I had to get home because I had a little baby and babysitter I had to relieve. And so there, of course, looking back, there are a lot of choices that we would have done differently. But um, thankfully, with the support of my colleagues and my family and my husband, and I was, we were able to, you know, make it work. And uh, the conductor was very supportive. Um, and people, on the most part, were very understanding of what I was going through. And, and then I got tenure and, and, you know, it's been 12 years now. It's really hard to imagine that it's been 12 years, but I still love it. And it's still scary. And it's still like a ton of work. Um, and we've had two more kids in the meantime, but <laughs> and my, my husband has worked up until this year. He, he left his job this year. Finally, we felt like, okay, it's time to stop driving 600 miles a week. It's Whoa. time for you to stay here. And, and so he's, you know, He's doing the things he wants to do now. He made that sacrifice for me while I was getting started. And now I'm working and he's doing, you know, the things that he wants to do. So it's, it's been a long road. Uh, right now it looks pretty good, but getting here was pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to um, award you the first ever Double Reed Dish Warrior Award because that's a very impressive <laughs> story. <laughs> This sounds great. <laughs> There's no cash well, involved. Sorry. I'll take it. I will I'm take sorry. any award. <laughs> oh my goodness. There's very much this narrative of you can either have a career or you can have a family. Did did you experience that? Like that that idea of how can you do this if you try to do both? Um I feel like there's a narrative because it looks like a narrative, like no one ever explicitly said, you cannot have children or you will never be able to do this job. It's, it's, I look around and most female wind players, if they have a child, they have one. Mm -hmm. um, and female principals, if they have a child, they have one and their husband helps out a lot, you know, mm -hmm. their partner you know, of my many teachers, only two of them have children and they each have one. <laughs> right. and, and it's, it's, it's very, I wanted more than one. I, I knew that I wanted more than one child. And my husband was, you know, definitely also wanted more than one. And the only way to make it work is to have a lot of help. Like there's no way that you can do it alone ever. You would go crazy instantly. So we've had a multitude of lovely helpers, babysitters, um, parents, grandparents, you know, neighbors, friends, um, you know, and my husband and I obviously do the bulk of the work, but, and he is, he's willing to do all that. That's, you know, it's so important to have a partner who's like, no, I'll do that. You go practice. <laughs> like, oh. You know, that's, that's, that's just so that I know that's, that it's not rare. I know there are many other partners out there like that. And it helps that you know, he's a musician. He was a bassoonist. He understands about reeds. He knows these things, right? And so I'm, I'm so grateful for his, you know, his partnership and his support and, and his understanding of 
kind of what it takes. And I can't go to work if I don't have a read. You know, I can imagine someone else being like, well, why don't you just use that one over there? <laughs> you don't understand. That one's terrible. I can't use that one. You know, like, you have so many reads. Why don't any of them work? Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't have to explain that kind of stuff to him. Um, I've sacrificed what sort of people would consider common things that you have to do to advance your career. I don't teach. I have very rarely have students. They're usually a one-off lesson on excerpts. I occasionally teach a master class, but only if I can drive there. And I don't, I'm not active with IDRS and I don't give recitals. I don't go out for drinks after concerts. I don't do these things that helps with the social fabric of the orchestra, you know, and recently I've started to be able to do more of these things. I've started to play a little bit chamber music here and there, which I love and I'm so excited to be getting back to. I have started to think about, huh, maybe I should, you know, go to IDRS just to see what's out there because there's so much out there that I've missed, you know, and all these people who I, I hear their names, I've never met them. I would love to meet these people and see what they're up to and hear them play and look at their reads and whatever. Um, so I'm, I am, excited now that my youngest is in kinder um, to kind of start <laughs> like entering the world again mm. um, and not just be hunkered down. And I, I do think that I've learned a lot of really valuable things by just staying in my hole and focusing. Um, but it, it's time to open that up. And yeah, I'm excited to, to get back to being social. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be slow. Cause again, my youngest is only in kinder. I'll add only this time. <laughs> um, so there's <laughs> still got quite a ways to go. Um, my oldest is in middle school. So, um, you know, new things on the horizon everywhere. Yeah. That's the only way to do it. I have a lot of help. So I wonder as you look back over your years in the Houston symphony, kind of what you have learned from being at that beginning point to now. And if there's any sentimentality in sitting in your teacher's former chair and, and what that feels like. It was really scary at first, especially since all the chairs around me were still populated with his colleagues that were with him at the time. He is an amazing player. But beyond that, he's an amazing musician and he has such a personality and such an amazing way of playing in the orchestra. That was very intimidating. <laughs> I think he'd probably laugh at me, but it was, it was so, it was, and, and I, it's not that I doubted that I also can play the bassoon and that I also have something to say. And that I also could eventually have a great way of playing in the orchestra. I was, well, sleep deprived. It, it, was, it was that I didn't know that other people would see me that way. And I also knew that I was coming from effectively zero professional experience. And I knew that it would take me a while to get used to it, but I didn't know how long. And that was sort of, that was, oh, there was a lot of trepidation there. And it did take a long time. I think it wouldn't have taken as long if I was actually sleeping more than like three hours in a row that first Oof. year, but it's, it's such a difficult job. And I've tried, I've tried to train myself not, not to think when, you know, I make a mistake or a colleague makes a mistake or something's not going well, not to think, boy, that was terrible. Or boy, I suck. Or man, why can't they do that? I've trained myself to think, man, 
this is so hard that even the people at this level make mistakes and we're all working really hard. And I know that I work hard and I know that I'm smart and I know that I'm doing all the right things and it's still this hard. So I'm right. trying to give myself a little bit of a break, but it's, it's really, it's really stressful. And I, I didn't come exactly right on the heels of Ben. Um, Eric Arbiter, the associate principal there, was acting principal for five or six years. So there was a little bit of a buffer there in terms of being compared directly, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I do know that a lot of people are very willing to just take me as me and not as, you know, ersatz Ben or whatever. So it wasn't, um, I didn't feel that pressure from other people as much, I, fe I felt it from myself um, because I admire Ben so much. And I, you know, I don't necessarily want to play like him, but I want to play as him. <laughs> you know, I want to play. Mm -hmm. um, I want people to enjoy my playing as much as they seem to enjoy his. So that was hard. So you've been there a while now, and you have probably experienced a lot of auditions from the other side. Maybe the happier, more comfortable more side, <laughs> the tenured side. <laughs> yes, feels so good. <laughs> um, what have you learned from listening to auditions from the other side of the curtain? That it's complicated, and it's definitely not a cut and dry situation. You've got seven individual personalities on the other side and depending on who's running the audition and which section is hiring they're all going to have their own desires for the person they want to be their colleague and everyone is trying their best to be absolutely fair and true to what they want and it's it can be very complicated because people are hearing different things people listen for different things and you can go down the line and everyone can have Sometimes the same thing to say, everyone's in agreement. Sometimes people say directly contradicting things like, oh gosh, this person, I thought their intonation was so good. And the next person's like, I thought their intonation was terrible. And they're mm -hmm. like, well, which one is it? <laughs> it can't be both. <laughs> and it's so, it's, so, it's so confusing and complicated, especially as a very young person sitting in with these much older, much experienced colleagues, you start to think, wait, am I just wrong? Like, did I hear that wrong? And as you get older now with more experience and as an older person and, you know, just more confident in my role, I'm thinking like, wow, everyone really just hears things differently, which explains so much. And so we just try to give each other some space. Like this person, they really want to hear this person again. Let's, let's move them forward, even if other people are maybe less sure. And we, we actually just had an audition. We just had our associate principal bassoon audition. Um, which we've had already once with a no hire and we've had it again. And our goal going in again was hire the best player. But for us, that means someone with an excellent ear and good rhythm who has something to say, but is also extremely flexible and very musically engaging. Hmm. And we, it's not the person who misses the least notes. It's not the person who plays perfectly auditions are so hard and we're very, I, I remember what it was like. So I think we're all, we're all very um, understanding of what's going on on the other side of the screen. We're happy to give someone another try at an excerpt. If someone misses a note. I don't really care. Now if they miss 10 notes in a row, okay, maybe that's a problem. But if they miss one note, whatever, I miss notes all the time. It's, it's, 
it's that's that's not what we're listening for so you to switch gears a little bit you are the author of the banana of life peeling away the mysteries of reed making for the bassoon and i would love for you to just tell us and our listeners a bit about the book itself and your motivation in writing it and um why you so generously felt inclined to save the sanity of the bassoon community with this excellent manual <laughs> So about, I think it's about six years ago now, I was in a huge read slump and I was so frustrated why I was just coming up short again and again and again. And so I started keeping track. I was like, this cannot be a complete mystery. This is not an unknowable problem. Like I can figure this out. So I started keeping track of my process, not like where I put the wires and stuff that was pretty nailed down, but like what am I thinking while I'm working on reads? That's a huge variable for me is my brain. <laughs> it's really hard to control. There's so many subconscious and unconscious thoughts and assumptions that I'm making. So I started keeping track and I had a piece of paper, like a blank piece of paper, and I would play a read that needed an adjustment. And I would write down my immediate assumption, like, oh, this is what's wrong. And then I would draw a little picture about like where I would work on the read. And then I would try every read test I knew on that read. And then I would write down what was actually wrong with the read and would then draw, draw a picture of where I would work on it. And then I would keep, I would do that and see if it was right. And so after a couple of weeks of this, I realized I was wrong about what the read needed 50% of the time. Whoa. Like half of the amount, half of the trims I was making were wrong to some degree. I was so discouraged. I was so disappointed. And I was like, this cannot continue for obvious reasons. <laughs> I was so frustrated. I was like, how can this be? I have a big job and I'm doing this job and I have good training and I am a very sort of like scientifically minded person. How can I be wrong so many times in a row? And so I started slowing everything down and examining everything I thought about reads. And I got out all my journals from school and I typed a lot of it up and I printed it out and I just started cutting out things and putting like ideas together. And at some point it ended up in like a little booklet form. And I was like, wow, I think maybe other people could use this. There's, there's no... There have not been modern readmaking books about the Hertzberg method. I don't know if there's any readmaking books about the Hertzberg method. So I decided to put something together just for, you know, friends if they wanted one. And as I kept going, I kind of got more and more excited about um, making it according to my philosophy of maybe of readmaking, which is like, here's the information, go experiment with it. Here's the information. Go find out all the nuances on your own. I can write 800 million words on reed making and none of them will make sense if you don't get out a reed and put it on your horn. So I, I, you know, I'm thinking of these old reed making books that weigh like 18 pounds and you're supposed to digest that information. And I feel like that really gets in the way of experimenting and just doing the work. And so I was like, well, what if I make this itty bitty little book 
that can sit open on your stand and there's like one idea a page. One I love piece of it. information that people can take and just chew on it and work at it. And like, I feel even like looking through my old journals, which I would do fairly consistently over the years, I'd always find something like, oh man, I forgot I was supposed to be doing this. Or, oh man, yeah, I remember that. That means something totally different now. I'm going to take this in a new direction now. And so I felt like that experience was, has been really valuable for me. So I know I have all my handouts from school, but I know friends who didn't take notes and they didn't have all those handouts. So what if I just put those at the beginning of the book, you know, like wires and shape and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, there are many read styles and many of them are very functional and can do what people want to do. I really believe in this particular read style. So I was like, well, how about I make it specifically Hertzberg read making and Ben Caymans. Cause I know he has actually added a lot in terms of specificity. I cannot say that word in terms <laughs> of how, how the specific measurements um, can apply to different things. I think Hertzberg was a little more vague. Um, he offered a lot of options, but maybe not sort of a neutral starting point. And Ben Kimmins kind of did that. So that's why I added his name in there. And obviously that's who I studied with. And then I decided to add some silly stuff because it, we have to take this with a sense of humor or we'll never survive how difficult this is. Um, and just added a few things that I, that had helped me and that I found that were interesting and, um, so I, I got really excited about it, started sharing it with a few friends who I had been working with on some other things, um, got amazing feedback, spent a lot of time editing it. I mean, I think it took me four years to put it together. I had uh, Ben Kamens go over it. I had in the back there are some other um, friends that were around at the time who I had use it for several months and then kind of report back as to what they were, whether it was working or not. And, um, and so that, uh, that turned into that book. And I'm so pleased that people find it useful, if only for like the wire chart in the front. Like, you, 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 you can't, like, Cayman's doesn't have a website. You can't like download that stuff. It's just not available, you know? And so I want it to be available because I think information should be free or at least cheap and, you know, usable. And so I, I've, I've gotten some really nice feedback. I've been very pleased with the reception of it. So, yeah, I think it's fantastic. And I, I love the, like you said, kind of the idea of it being small enough to digest as a whole. I also love it as a quick reference when you're playing or practicing and you're like, ah, this read is fine, except it's just doing blah. And then it's like mm-hmm. the banana of life can fix that. And you just like, you know, <laughs> scroll until you find that problem. And then it's like, okay, I'm going to scrape there a little bit. And it, it can also just be like a help banana of life. My read's not quite perfect and it's a great quick <laughs> reference and that type of thing too <laughs> great that's great i love the the idea of we laugh so that we don't cry aspect of it. oh absolutely <laughs> don't get me wrong i cry plenty but i try to mostly laugh so that i don't cry <laughs> uh, i mean it's it's a worthy it's a worthy endeavor obviously um which is why so many people attempt it and it's wonderful to see the general level of read making coming up so much as people share. You know, I hear these stories about like, well, you know, so-and-so wouldn't ever share their read secrets. And I'm like, why? <laughs> like, we need all the help we can get. Exactly. Everybody should get any information that they need to help them. This should not be a secret. It's not a competitive thing. 
it's not, I just, everyone should have all the information at their fingertips and they can take whatever they want from any read style and build that into their own, you know, whatever works for them, they should use. So I'm wondering what exciting projects or concerts or I don't know, anything you're looking forward to coming up on the horizon that you'd like to tell us and our listeners about? Well, with the Houston Symphony, we perform almost every weekend. And so we've got many subscriptions coming up. Um, I'm excited about Mahler 7. I'm excited about a Mozart piano concerto that's coming up in a few weeks. Yeah, we ha- I mean, we have family concerts. We have subscriptions. We have pops. Um, I don't perform outside the orchestra very much for, you know, family reasons. And gosh, that's a lot of practicing. <laughs> but I... I, I I next season, so the 2021 season, um, toward the end of the season, I will be performing the Mozart Symphonia Contratant on a subscription concert with our music director. And so I'm already getting excited about that. Um, but in terms of other solo kind of stuff, I don't really have anything coming up. That would be, that's a, that's a life goal. Eventually like to give recitals and play sonatas and things. (laughs) What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? I guess be curious. Be curious about everything. And I've learned things outside the realm of music that have really come over into the realm of music and taught me a lot of things about how to practice and what's important and how to do things. Um, You have to be very mindful. Distraction will kill just about anything, motivation, efficiency, (laughs) and you have to be extremely efficient. You have to be, um, you have to pay attention to everything you're doing and that's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And it really is a skill to teach yourself how to pay attention to yourself and ask questions. You know, all these, our thoughts are going on in our head and they seem very natural because they're in our head. They seem true and they feel true. Well, that's not, the case a lot of the time you put on a read and you're like oh gosh this is flat well is it it feels flat did you check a tuner (laughs) it might Mm -hmm. not be flat one note might be sharp so the note next to it sounds flat like the intervals just to like these are things that that I've had to learn to just jump straight to the crux of the problem when my kiddos were little I had 45 minutes to practice sometimes and it's like all right what do I do okay this piece doesn't have anything above a high A. So it's scales to A. It's intervals in that key. It's one long tone on this note that's pianissimo on the second page with the clarinets. And that's all I have time for. It's crazy. So I, I understand that for some people that might take the fun out of it because they like, you know, kind of doodling around and having fun. And that's great. But at some point you have to focus and you can't do that. And so taking time to kind of check your phone every 10 seconds or have music playing in the background or be talking to a friend on the phone or that's great for some things like, you know, putting together blanks or something. But when you're practicing, it has to be a hundred percent focus for as long as you can manage it. And, and those, those stretches of time will become longer as you become more experienced with that. And that's just so important. And you have to question every bit of, Oh gosh, that this piece starts piano. Okay, play it. Was that piano? I don't know. I should record that. Or, huh, this scale is just a simple A sanding scale. I don't have to practice that. Well, how about if I practice it and see what happens? Ooh, those notes are not all the same 
uh, color or they're not all the same dynamic or hmm, that's going to be more difficult than I thought because this read doesn't respond the way that I thought it would. So I either need to work on my read or practice that scale some more. So there's all these little things that I try not to skip. I try not to make assumptions. You just, you just have to practice so much. I don't have to practice four or five hours a day anymore, but I did for years, you know, probably all the way through grad school, certainly. And that year after grad school, when I was trying to take auditions, it was four or five hours a day, uh, not including read making, you know, right. it was just so much work. Um, and obviously that's, that's paid off. And I was privileged to have the support. I had a husband who was working, so I didn't have to work. And I had, you know, teachers to help me and all, you know, as mu do as much work as you can while you have a weekly check-in with your teacher. It's so important to have that feedback. We don't know what we don't know. We are not sophisticated when we are younger. We mm -hmm. don't know what sounds good. We don't know what's good enough. And that's why your teacher is there. And the other big thing is listen to music. Use your ears. And don't use your ears to go, gosh, I like that person's sound. Use your ears to say, why do I like that person's sound? Oh, look what they did with their articulation. Huh, they're holding those notes almost to the very next note. Or gosh, their vibrato is so integrated. I wonder if I can replicate that and then go to the practice room and try and see if you can do it. Which is hilarious because I was a terrible music listener when I was in school. But <laughs> I know that it's important now. <laughs> because I had to do it, you know, on the job. These big soloists come in and I'm just like, my jaw drops. And I'm like, oh, I want to be able to do that on the bassoon, right? Like, it just, yeah. So copying people you love, the way, the way they move their sound, it's all vibrations. It's all sound. We can all do it. I just like to think that it's a little harder on the bassoon. <laughs> <laughs> and the oboe. And the oboe. Anything with a double read is so hard. <laughs> Ryan, you are absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's such a wonderful way to just, you know, we're recording this in the morning. So now I'm like, I want to go practice. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready to <laughs> Me go. Me too. I'm going to go practice right now. <laughs> Thank you so so much for talking with us. This has been such a wonderful way to spend an hour. Thank you. It's been really great to get to know you guys and to have a little chat. Thank you for joining us for that episode. We hope you enjoyed that interview. As always, please follow us on all the social media platforms and you can listen to us anywhere that you get your podcasts. Don't forget to tune in for our next episode where we bring you an interview with international oboe superstar Philippe Tondre. Until then, take care of each other and stay healthy. It's time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads.